Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 151 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features the winner of our inaugural Landscape Photography Conservation Award, J. Henry Fair. If you're not familiar with Henry's work, you are in for a real treat. His most recent project involved photographing the impacts of consumerism from an airplane, including impacts on the land from mining, oil and gas extraction, and more. The results of this work are encapsulated in his 200-page book, Industrial Scars. Henry sent me a copy of his book, and I was absolutely amazed by the beauty and horror portrayed in his images. It is truly a magnificent book. On the podcast this week, we covered a wide variety of topics, including aerial photography techniques, the environmental crisis, the politicization of the environment, photography as a tool for for social change, and what photographers can do to make a difference in the world. Also, Henry is offering a discount on his book for patrons of the podcast, so if you're interested in purchasing it for a discount, head to Patreon and get the link to that discount. I'm always looking at ways to provide value to the people that financially support the podcast over on Patreon, so I hope it helps. Thanks for your support. Before we get started, I did want to let you know about a special opportunity to meet me at the upcoming Nightscaper Conference in Kanab, Utah from May 20th to May 22nd. If you listened to my recent episode with Royce Bear, you'll know that the conference is going to be amazing. Royce has assembled the world's best night photographers for an incredible experience that surely won't disappoint. I'll also be doing some fun podcasting and panel discussions at the conference. If you're interested, head over to nightscaper.weebly.com or find the link in the liner notes. Also, you can use the code PAYNE100, that's P-A-Y-N-E-100, for a $100 discount on the conference. Alright, well lastly, just be warned, Henry is opinionated. Enjoy! Let's get to the show. Henry Fair, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, I. Um, for people that maybe aren't familiar, hopefully my listeners are familiar with your name by now. Recently, you were awarded our Landscape Photography Conservation Award for your work on, gosh, I don't even know how to describe it, your work on exposing kind of the exploits of the environment due to consumerism through your photography. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, quite, it's always an honor to be for someone to, especially it's an honor when uh, uh, an expert compatriot recognizes what you do and says, hey, you know, good job. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. We actually... I actually uh, had eight judges who didn't have, it was all blind. So nobody knew who the nominee was and they just had description of, of what they were doing. And you, you scored the highest for all the, from all the judges. So yeah. it wasn't me actually that, that picked. So, <laughs> but I'm really happy with the result because I really thank you for sending me a copy of your book, industrial scars. And um, it really just, 
gosh, solidified the selection by the judges because I am just blown away by the work that you've put together here in your book. Just thank you. Yeah. Well, so for people that don't know you, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your work and how you got started in in this in this world. <laughs> well, I've always been a photographer. I from the age of 16, 15 even, I uh, knew that the the camera was my tool. Um, And I always had something to say uh, to many people's dismay. And (laughs) for me, photography is very much about about saying something, about, um, about, Let's face it, a photograph is a recording of something that happened. Uh, as much as we abstract it, as much as we take it away from, as we try to take it away from that, it is still the recording of a moment in time. And for me, therefore, it, it is a sense, inevitably, a journalistic tool, even if you're only reflecting on your own life or whatever. Um, and of course, that is my bent as well by nature is, is I'm a missionary and somehow the environment has always been my mission. I've always been very afraid, alarmed, uh, that our lifestyle is not compatible with a future for our children. We live in a limited system, and if we uh, exploit the resources in that system at a rate that they can't be regenerated, well, there's an end point. And um, so that's always been my focus. And then the trick became how do I find a way to make that art, make meaning make art that was um, intriguing, beautiful, uh, stimulating and interest prompting for people. Mm. That's, <laughs> that's the nutshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. In the very first part of your, of your book, Industrial Scars, where you kind of introduce your work on page 25, you, on the very first paragraph, you make a statement that I personally found very impactful and caused me to kind of pause in my own photography. And I'm just going to read it for listeners and kind of let you uh, respond to it. Um, But it basically what you say is uh, I make pictures about things that are important to me. My self-imposed guidelines are strict. An image must be both meaningful and beautiful. In my opinion, art that is beautiful, but not meaningful is decoration. Art that is meaningful without beauty is pedantic. Much of what is labeled art today is made by and for the insiders of the art world. I want to make art that tells a story to regular people, art which hopefully gives them an insight into our world, which for me, I was like, yeah, a lot of my photography is kind of meaningless now. And um, and I know you didn't mean it as like an insult to other photographers, of course, but <laughs> it was more of an inspiration to me uh, to to want my photography to have more meaning than just decoration. So uh what <laughs> I was inspired by it, but it was it also definitely hit me right in the chest. <laughs> Do you know that uh that um De Chirico called other all other painters onanists? Yeah, what is what what is that? What do you mean by that? Uh, 
basically, he, De Chirico, or so the story goes, said that uh, all other painters were jerk-offs. <laughs> uh, that's funny. <laughs> well, I wasn't implying that's what you meant by it. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like it's an interesting... Uh, it's an interesting thing to think about as a photographer um, because I think a lot of times people get into photography for lots of different reasons. And sometimes it's just to take pictures of things that they think look pretty. And oftentimes I think once we get further into, into photography and it becomes more of an artistic expression that some people, I feel like we try to seek out more meaning for our photos than just that display of beauty. Yes. And again, for me, the objective is to do both. Mm. Um, and, and do, and that's what for me makes, um, makes good art. If I go to uh, a museum or a gallery or, uh, you know, Documenta or one of the, one of the big art fairs and I have to, read a, an encyclopedia before I get it, then it's failed for me. Mm. Um, and yeah. And if somebody uh, looks at my thing and it doesn't stimulate them to want to know more, then it, my thing has failed. Mm. Yeah. I think what's super interesting about your work is that it's, I th correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, entirely done from an airplane as aerial photography. Yes. And it's these incredible, incredibly colorful, powerful, and just impactful kind of abstract images that upon further inspection, you realize that it's actually like toxic waste or, um, you know, the effects of, of mining or a coal mine or, or what have you. And, and I think that's, what's super fascinating about the work that you do is that it, it's beautiful and it's horrifying at the same time. Yeah. And of course that's what I'm going for is, um, is to use these rules of making, cause we all work by the rules that those Renaissance painters rediscovered. Yeah. Um, uh, or if you look at somebody like Dura, uh, he's mind-boggling. Do you know? Do you know him? I don't. The painter. Um, it's, he's a fascinating character. He's from Nuremberg. His father was a goldsmith, and he, right at the same time as Gutenberg invented the printing press, and um, Dura was amazing, obviously, the crafts always must be there. Um, he was an amazing painter, an amazing um, etcher, and he also understood the revolution in technology, which was happening at that moment in Germany. You know, it came with the Reformation, um, with Martin Luther nailing his theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg mm. and saying, you know, the, the individual is the is the, the closest to God, and then you know Gutenberg over there on the Rhine, uh, at least is taking credit for inventing movable type, and um, 
you know, that invention of movable, for me, the printing press is far more interesting than the internet. Mm. Yeah, because the printing press, it's the first means of communication, of modern mass communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can even be many to many, well, not many to many, but one to many. And Durer especially understood this. And it said that Durer's um, work was in every house in Europe, you know, his lithographs, hmm. to the point where you, he's so impactful that you subconsciously know his work. For instance, the rhinoceros, if you can think back through your visual iconography, the, um, the sort of antique looking picture of a rhinoceros, Okay. I guarantee you know it. Um, And that's amazing, yeah, that this guy got it, the technology change. He understood what was happening with the invention of the printing press. Right. And, you know, wow. And how to create art that suddenly everybody heard about it and everybody wanted it Mm. and got it. Right. So would you say that your work has been highly influenced by um, other mediums and other forms of art? Yes, of course. Um, Music is very important to me. And um, and narrative. How do we tell a story using the – A, using our craft, and B – and I'm a big believer in craft – if you don't know the technical aspects of what you're doing, and of course photography is the one that is the easiest to cheat in that regard, but <laughs> if you don't know the technical background of what you're doing, I, I think I think you're lost. The uh, the craft, and then having something to say, mm-hmm. and it's that combination that makes art. Well, speaking of craft, I mean, like we said earlier, all of your photography and the stories that you're telling through your photography is done um, from the aerial aspect. Which well, of this series. Of this series, gotcha. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. I do a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, well, I mean, obviously aerial photography has its own craftsmanship involved because you're, I'm assuming you're doing this from an airplane and not a helicopter. Correct. And I'm also assuming that there's probably windows as well. And you're moving at a fairly fast pace. So you have to think about shutter speed. And so kind of what, what have you learned about aerial photography techniques through the creation of of this amazing body of work? Make sure when you're screwing the polarizer above a toxic waste pit, especially when it's one of those expensive polarizers, that you always screw it clockwise. Okay? You heard it you heard it here first. <laughs> have you lost a polarizer or Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we've all made that mistake before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right down into the toxic waste goop. You know, it's like, oh shit, I guess I'm not getting that one back. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, like, what what other kind of technical things have you learned in terms of 
execution? Well, again, the modern technology has made it all quite easy in that with um, modern motion stabilization, either built into the camera or the lens, you're not faced with the same obstacles that one would have been even 10 years ago. Hmm. So, yes, I have a gyro stabilizer. Yes, I use it. But traveling with that heavy gyro stabilizer is a burden. Hmm. Um, Not to mention, uh, I always write a note in my suit because you can't hand carry that sucker. I always write a note in my suitcase, you know, gyro stabilizer for photography. (laughs) It Um, is not for making weapons of mass destruction. Oh, you know, you have to have a... um, you have to have an export license to have one in the U.S. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe there's only one company that makes them in Connecticut. So, you know, everything, as you know, Matt, everything's a trade-off. So right. if you that gyro is heavy, it helps. It can it can work in um, in conjunction with camera stabilization. You know, then there's the question of polarizer. Polarizer always helps, especially with with shooting in an industrial area from altitude, um, and you're shooting through haze. But of course, unless you got bright sunshine, that two stops for a polarizer uh, can cut into your shutter speed. Um, <laughs> in the old days, and I don't want to sound like a curmudgeon, the um, the technology we have enables uh enables us to do the things that we can do right and just as always i mean you know irving penn's old um old contrasty portraits you know how he did those he went to all these places he shot transparency film and printed internegatives in the dark room and then made black and white prints from those internegatives I was like, oh, my God, all these years. we, And I guess that, you know, it is a a stylistic choice, but it's also um, an approach based on um, the technology that was available at the time. Did you know, here's one for you, Matt. You know, people say, oh, well, photography, can you trust it? Um, (laughs) And, of course, you can't to the point of, Let's see, when Matthew Brady was sending his minions out to photograph the Civil War battlefields, aside aside from rearranging the bodies to get the better picture, in those days, as you probably know, black and white film was not very good and particularly sensitive to the blue spectrum and not the red spectrum. And so they would routinely take two pictures of every scene, one of the foreground and one of the sky so that they could have the clouds in the sky and then print those separately in the dark. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Photography has never been about truth. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Although I wonder, you know, based, you know, the work that you're producing in order to tell a compelling story that, is intended to potentially change the way people think about uh, the environmental crisis that we face as a as a globe as a global community. That you want people to trust your photography, right? Yes, 
yeah, I, and I feel strongly about that, that I, um, I can't alter the pictures. But of course, as soon as you say alter the pictures, <laughs> what does that mean? Right? right. I mean, right. is an alteration is an alteration <laughs> a crop? Is an alteration a setting of levels? Is an alteration a um, you know stretch to fit a particular format? You know what exactly con- constitutes an alteration? Now, is an alteration taking out something that was there? Well, if that was as we've seen recently. If you take out a, a character in a world press photograph, that's an unallowable alteration. If somebody takes out uh, a paint chip, is that an, uh, you know, I mean, yeah. It, we, we, modern, the modern media world is faced with all of these um, gray areas. Right. Yeah, I mean. But I, I feel like, my, yes, my pictures m- must be honest right. somehow. Right. Otherwise, people are going to be like, "Oh, well, that that that's not as bad as it makes he makes it out to be." Well, of course. Now, wait a minute. There's the other side of the coin, Matt, which is that the really bad stuff is not photographable. It's either mm. not within reach, or you know they'll kill you if you try to go there, or uh, it's underground, or you know it's invisible to visible light rays. Mm-hmm. Um, so hmm. the really bad stuff, you know, how do you photograph, um, Fukushima? It's nothing right. interesting there. Right. How do you photograph radiation in the Pacific Ocean? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so uh-huh. the really bad stuff, no, you're not seeing it. <laughs> Sorry to tell you. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, what, what exactly inspired you in terms of the environmental crisis to, to use your f- photography as a way to try to try to move the, the needle on that particular issue? Well, in fact, I, I don't know. I was born with a concern about the natural systems that provide us clean air and clean water. Um, you know, that word environment, every word has become politicized uh, today. And that word environment carries so much association and political connotation. Right. And as soon, you know, it's an interesting thing because as soon as you become political, you, you lose part of your audience. This is true. I mean, especially in today's modern age of, of polarization through news media and all of those things. I feel like it's, it's as bad as it's ever been in terms of people being able to think critically about an issue without having some sort of preconceived bias based on the type of media that they consume. Yeah. And who they talk to. Yeah, exactly. And the circles they run. I mean, we all suffer from it. I suffer from it. You probably suffer from it. Wait, whoa, from- whoa, whoa. But I'm right. <laughs> well, so am I. <laughs> when you agree with me, yes. Yeah, right. No, I mean, I think it's interesting, though. I, I, me, me personally, I, I really try to take the time to 
be super conscious of those biases so that I can at least be open-minded to hearing and understanding other people's points of view. But it still makes it difficult to kind of weed out all of the noise that's being fed to us. But gosh, we could go on that topic for hours and it has almost nothing to do with photography. <laughs> yeah, it would be so easy. My family, I come from a, from a family that's extremely Republican. And yes, I have to, um, to, to, for family unity, we have to not ask those, any questions like that. And um, yeah, uh, but let's stay with photography. <laughs> Although it's related, right? I mean, I mean, we are talking about your photography and how you're trying to use it as a tool for social change as it relates to the environment. So, I mean, I think it's almost impossible to depoliticize that topic in in some ways. Oh, I agree. I mean, uh, well, only because politicized, only because the forces that are making money off of um, free utilization of our common resources, which is what's happening here. The oil and gas companies are are basically stealing from us. They are stealing, yeah, clean air, clean water. They are they're they're utilizing those uh, those common assets without paying for them, and they are also investing in politicizing these terms to make it to their own interest, their own financial gain. So, yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm, I mean, actually, uh, I feel like what's interesting about our current climate um, global globally is that there doesn't seem to be an understanding from the general public that in its, you know, Democrats and Republicans in Congress and Senate, they're all about furthering the idea that we want a global economy so that the multinational corporations can continue to profit so that people at the very top can make more money. And of course, they're selling the idea that, well, it, mean, it means everyone else is going to make more money too, which is partially uh, true, right? <laughs> right. It's partially true. I mean, it does create jobs. It does create economy. It does all of those things. But the question is, like, at what cost? And well, and um, the, <laughs> yeah, my God, let's go back to photography. <laughs> of course, that is what my photography, what this aspect of my photography is all about, is raising that awareness. Right. Um, and so, who are my heroes? My hero is the guy, the Russian guy, that photographed Chernobyl. Mm. knew knew that he was getting radiation poisoning and continued to do it and photograph Chernobyl as it was happening. Mm. You know, those are, those are the certainly, um, well, Herzog, you, you know, Werner Herzog. I'm familiar with the name, but. Oh my God. One of the great, if not the greatest filmmaker still living German. If you look into his body of work, film impacts me a lot. Um, and again, back to this idea of telling stories. And that's what I am. I'm a storyteller. I happen to use photography and science and research and narrative and the Internet and all the tools I can 
I can find, but I, I'm telling stories. And similarly, Werner Herzog, this filmmaker, is telling stories using the tools of film. And um, yeah, telling of stories is, is just for me so key. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's interesting trying to use art to as a tool for social change. And I think, you know, historically, there's plenty of examples of it, like you're saying, the guy that photographed Chernobyl. I mean, even, uh, you know, back in the 30s with uh, Ansel Adams was trying to do a little bit of that. Trying in terms to protect of, Western lands, yeah, yeah. Sebastio right. Salgado uh, is, um, you know, one of the current living heroes. Right. I mean, I don't think people realize this, but actually Ansel Adams tried to do a lot of work around uh, the internment camps during World War II, the Japanese internment camps. He actually went to those and photographed a lot of the people living there and wanted to, he actually tried, he published a book that the interior department wouldn't let him really publish. And it was all about showing kind of this contradiction of here are people that are American citizens that are locked up just because they're Japanese. And he wanted people to know that. And of course, the the government at the time did not want people to really, they wanted, they wanted that to stay the way it was. Um, and of course, now, after that, there's all kinds of apologetic, you know, gestures. I just heard the other day, one of this, I can't remember where, but it was like, what would you like 60 years later and people are still apologizing for, for internment camps. So I think, you know, photography as a tool for social change, I think is a very powerful goal to have in mind as a photographer. Um, but I don't think a lot of people feel like they can do it or know how to do it. Like, what do you think photographers can do? Well, you know, the thing to do is, is, Go with your obsessions mm. and be an agent for, you know, get obsessed about something and then be the, the, the one who creates audiovisual content to, on that issue. And in fact, there, let's say that your concern is the environment and you're you want to be a photographer, you are a photographer. Um, there are lots of little uh, environmental institutions that need, that need audio, you know, need their stories told. So if really you want to be, you, you want to do something positive for the environment, you know, go find your local land trust or the little, the local uh, organization that is um, promoting recycling or whatever and figure out how to make the beautiful pictures that tell their story and thus, um, you know, move an environmental issue forward. So it's more about, I think, okay, well, what are, and I, I'm very lucky. I did, I started exactly there by um, starting a, to preserve open space, uh, north of New York City it was one of my mm. first environmental um, photography actions, and we were just trespassing on the uh, on the <laughs> estate on the estates of super rich people. And my partner in this was um, uh, 
was a, uh, a wannabe biologist, but who actually worked for Deutsche Bank to pay the bills. And um, we would go at dawn all in this area where there are lots of big open spaces remaining. And it's an important part of the biotic corridor around New York City. And um, yeah, you know, and it ended up getting community support and we did an exhibit and it's, uh, we ended up getting a million dollars from the county to, to, you know, a lot of stuff happened because we, now a big part of it was the biologist who, who laid down the, the uh, important biological facts about, um, about our mission there. But, you know, we, we, we saved land. So um, it's doable. And it, it, in a way, it's the same thing for people who complain about, oh, I know climate change is big. What do I do? I'm going to go down and eat myself a hamburger and feel better. Uh, wait a minute. Now, I know it's only one hamburger. And, but, you know, look up on the web and figure out the environmental cost of one hamburger. It is significant. And if you go to a fast food place, you're cutting down the Amazon to have your fast food hamburger. So to throw up or, you know, you run into the nearest uh, coffee place on the corner and order yourself a nice latte that comes in a nice big plastic cup with a plastic lid and a plastic straw. So don't then come out of that nice coffee place and complain to me that you don't know what you can do to make the world a better place. Um, you know, Stay away from plastic. Just cut plastic out of your life. Yeah. Right? Uh, and and people, when I say that, people immediately throw up there. And yes, I'm in New York City. And yes, there's a nice uh, bio supermarket right around the corner where I can buy my oatmeal and rice in bulk. But you know what? I can find that in Charleston. Now, maybe you can't find that in Sumter, South Carolina, but you probably can. You know, if you're willing to look. But but I think mostly there's a lot of laziness and a lot. Now, wait a minute. Let's backtrack. Sorry to get back <laughs> onto, the, onto the environment. The big thing is that we as a society must make rules that, um, that protect our air and water and our people, you know, and it's all linked. So... We need to, as a society, agree to protect our rivers. You know, it wasn't that long ago that the Maumee was burning in Toledo. So, right. and now we're going back towards that. And is that okay, Americans? I would argue that it's not okay. But I think part of the problem is that most of the people right now didn't, weren't alive or don't remember that being a problem. I mean, it was a huge yes. problem. And that issue has become, just as I'm referring back to what you said five minutes ago, that issue has become politicized precisely by the people that are making money dumping into our rivers, dumping poisons into our rivers. And by placing that on one side of a political divide, they've suddenly won half of the story, right? Because as soon as that becomes... Oh, that's a liberal issue, protecting the clean, the cleanliness of our rivers. Well, then, you know, you've already got your constituency off to war. 
I mean, until people are actually personally impacted by those kinds of policies, they don't really care. <laughs> and but the irony is that they already are. Oh, I agree. For, for instance, nonstick pans. Okay, you know, so PFOA. Speaking of boring, can't photograph it. Do you know what it is? PFOA. <laughs> I'm assuming it's a chemical compound. It's a chemical compound that was developed by the chemical majors to um, make nonstick coatings, mm -hmm. meaning right. for pans and cooking. For pans. Oh no, that's only the beginning, Matt. Raincoats, sofas, rugs. So PFOA, which is carcinogenic as hell, is in, it's water soluble. So it's everywhere. It's in our rain. And it's coming down into all of our drinking water supplies. And suddenly, oops, all of the drinking water supplies in the USA test at higher than safe levels of PFOA. And oh, by the way, the EPA, thanks to being defunded, is not even looking into this whole class of chemicals. So they've only, they've only got regs for one or two of the class of chemicals of which there are thousands. So, but until we as citizens stand up and demand this regulation and set aside the fact that it doesn't matter whether you vote red or blue, poison water is poison water and it's your children too. Right. You know, until we set aside those um, those uh, mind blocks, then we're in trouble. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I actually asked some of our listeners for some questions, and I feel like this is a perfect place to kind of interject one of those questions because it super <laughs> relates to this. Our listener, Anna Morgan, she kind of wanted to, her question is, can photographic aesthetics break down the nature culture binaries, which I think is kind of what you're talking about. Well, and I think, you know, I, I think she's asking in a larger sense, she's asking, can art change the world? Right. Yeah, that's basically, the, that's the larger question that I hear under her question. And I hope I'm getting her meaning. I, right. I think you're right. Um, and I, I say resoundingly, yes, you know, look at, uh, the, the world was a different place after the Beatles. The world was a different place after Beethoven. The world was a different place. It was seeing the Vietnam War on television, which motivated the American people to, um, to stand up and say, no, we're not putting up with that. Now, of course, there were the radicals who were chastised by the media, as they always are, you know, the ones who, I mean, don't, don't forget, four people died at Kent State protesting right. the Vietnam War. Four people were shot down by the National Guard because they were protesting. <laughs> yeah. So let me tell you another little story, launch into an aside. I've been photographing coasts. Yeah, that's my new environmental mm -hmm. issue, which is all about us thinking as a society about uh, the rising water and how we're going to deal with it. And I photographed uh, at a um, shipyard a, an amazing um, battleship under construction. 
Now, I write a lot about my pictures, and in writing about that, I have whole encyclopedias on the web. By the way, it's really cool. <laughs> uh, and that, well, people in exhibits, I use QR codes to let people um, access these encyclopedias. Oh. So I photographed this battleship, and I needed to write about it in the encyclopedia. And I started to research it. That's what I do. I'm a researcher. And I figured out what battleship it was because ships are well documented. And, uh, and in reading about it, I, it said this was a restarted line of battleships replacing the Zumwalt line of battleships, which were prematurely canceled. And I thought, what? Started to read about the Zumwalt class. Well, it happens to be a stealth battleship that the Navy built. Now, it was designed to be the do-it-all battleship. It could be 100 miles offshore and support a, uh, a land conflict onshore from 100 miles away, which kept it out of the range of most shore guns. It was based on a giant, um, a giant gun, which could theoretically shoot that uh, 100-plus miles with accuracy. Well, it turned out that gun didn't work. So, therefore, the whole raison d'etre of the battleship was shot. So the Navy just said, well, in fact, no, 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 we really wanted that battleship to do other stuff. So, okay, well, it's, and it's got a whole new engine and all of this stuff. And uh, let's see, one of them, the first one died in the Panama Canal and had to be towed out. Yeah. And the second one, um, the, bat, the engine died, and so that engine had to be replaced at $200 million to you. Um, and as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. I saw that, and sure enough, docked right there at that same shipyard was battleship number two of this stealth battleship class, which is a total, total failure. They're not even using them. Now, wait a minute. Here's the funny part, Matt. You with me? I'm with you. <laughs> you want to know how much this cost you? Do you really want to know? Uh, uh, sure. $21 billion. For three, they built three, and they're just unusable. I'm curious to what the per-person cost of that is. Do you know how many people there are in the USA? Yeah, I was like. I don't know, 380 million? Not even that, right? Something like that? Divided by 380 million. I was just guessing. <laughs> I could look it up. <laughs> $55 a person. So you paid $55 for that battleship sitting in that harbor with a dead engine. No, it's which, actually, will never, which will never be used. You got a bargain. You got a bargain. Three hundred and thirty million, but yeah, it's still it's even worse. So you actually. paid, yeah, you paid sixty bucks for it, right? That's awesome because I just, <laughs> I just, uh, I just did my taxes and I owe quite a bit. So super excited for that. You gotta go and uh, and write your initials on that battleship, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> but now you think about that, and I have this debate with my family. Oh well, we can't afford national health care. And I just want to say, wait a minute, we paid $21 billion for three 
battleships that'll never be used. And we and can't no afford. one seems to care about it. Yeah. And we can't afford no one's even heard about it. We can't they obviously covered it up pretty well. We can't afford national health care, thanks. And let alone education of our you know, our our lesser endowed citizens. Moving on. So let's talk about <laughs> craft. I think the fact that you can go down to a discount store and buy yourself an EOS, uh, and it's a great machine, no doubt, and a nice zoom lens, you know, a 20 to 200 zoom lens, and power it up, and off you go. It's crazy. It's the worst thing. It, a, it's killed professional photography. Because, of course, how can somebody justify paying you when they can um, get some kid out of uh, college with an EOS anyway and Photoshop? <laughs> I think if you don't know your craft, you'll never be an artist. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, there's still a pretty significant gap between someone who just started photography and someone who's been doing it for 10, 20 years, I think. Well, I don't know. Well, what was, I mean, it's not a given. It? Just because you've been doing it forever doesn't mean you're going to be better. But <laughs> when I look at my photography from 10 years ago and I look at it today, there's definitely a difference. So um, I don't know. I think, like you said, I think that's all in how you apply the craft and how much time you spend investing in that craft and learning and dedicating to you know, diversifying your skills and techniques and things of that nature. So, um, but that's all craft. That's all craftsmanship. It's all crap. Is that what you said? It's all crap. Cra craft. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, all of my photography is crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just, um, closed a wonderful exhibition at the museum of natural history, in Germany. Mm -hmm. And, um, the team there was fantastic, really a joy to work with, especially for a loner. You know, part of the part of the um, drag of being a photographer is that you are a, a, a lone operator. Never got tired of the joke about my shit photographs of shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is literally shit. <laughs> this is literally, Henry's a shit photographer of shit, you know. <laughs> Well, it's true, right? Like you're taking it's pictures true. of yeah. stuff that is gross and disgusting, but it's also beautiful. <laughs> well, and that's what um, that's what I learned how to do was to, and I I'm dealing in irony. Yeah, that's 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 really what I do is I deal in irony, and I am um, exploring multiple ironies in our modern. A, the irony of living in the modern world, and even the intelligent person knows that they are not living sustainably. Um, mm -hmm. Or sorry, every intelligent person knows, even, you know, even a conservative. Now, wait a minute, let's be clear. I am the conservative. I want to conserve resources for my children. So the rest of them are not conservatives. Um, but so that irony of not, you know, all of us are living unsustainably. The irony of making something beautiful out of something terrible. 
and you know the irony of just being human in the modern world so that's all as i see it the subject of the true subject of my work <laughs> and then what? wait a minute let's not forget the irony that that henry somehow got here <laughs> <laughs> well to what degree do you uh, agree or disagree that by presenting environmental ugliness in a beautiful way that viewers' capacity to exercise ethical judgments or change their behavior is limited? Um, I would flip that question around and say, to what degree do you expect showing someone beautiful pictures of cute little animals is going to get them to realize the threat that we face and change their behavior to do something about it? I hate, for instance, nature shows, hmm. right? I mean, you know, you can look at all the cute little apes you want, but it's not going to make you think twice about buying a new smartphone this year when I know, and you should know, that buying that new smartphone directly contributes to the rape and murder of a woman in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and also contributes to the killing and eating of a lowland gorilla in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So, you know, it's not the, I would say, making an ironical, beautiful picture of toxic waste is more effective to get people to consider their citizenry than seeing a picture, a beautiful picture of a gorilla, a baby gorilla, which, um, you know, and even if you have Richard Attenborough coming on afterwards saying, we'd like for you to know that those wildlands are threatened. Mm. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry, doesn't work. <laughs> Right. Although I will say that um, one topic of conversation that I've had with a lot of photographers, this kind of parallel thinking of, you know, not sharing f photographic locations because we don't want that place to be overrun with other photographers and things of that nature. The flip side of that is that if we don't showcase beautiful places, then people aren't going to want to protect them. So I think there is like this weird dichotomy there between or balance i guess of you know beautiful photos of beautiful places can also inform people to make different decisions as well yes just yes. not around environmental issues although uh, well i guess it could do that too i mean if you have um like here in colorado they're trying to open up all of the all a bunch of public land to mining and for forestry and stuff like that. So, you know, one tool we have against that is to show people how beautiful those places are. And then, you know, theoretically, you could show them a place that used to be that beautiful that no longer is because of mining and forestry and ask people if that's what they want that place to look like. Yes, 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 yes. All of the above. I mean, the main thing we've got to do is fight disinformation. Or one of the many things we have to do is fight disinformation mm -hmm. um, because there are these forces out there who are, um, you know, they're, they're, did you read recently about the climate denialism money 
behind um, the IFD in Germany? I did not. It's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. Because Germany, of course, is is a place where um, people try to, well, whatever. Um, people. I was going to say a lot of Germans try to be conscientious. Mm-hmm. Germany had Germany has its guilty history, and one of the um, one of the results of their insistence on remembering their history, which is important, is that they try to be conscientious. And so here's this um, climate denial money who is putting money into um, into the uh, right wing candidates. Sure. Quite interesting. Um, not, also not surprising at all to me. We're, we're having trouble staying on photography. But, of course, photography is, again, I think photography is by nature a, a political tool. Right. I just feel like most people don't th- think of it as a political tool, at least not in the nature and landscape realm, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, historically, there are lots of people who have used it that way. Not and not that distant of a past. Yeah, it's. Um, I used to do. I gave a lecture recently at Technical University in Berlin to a group of um, of uh, fashion design students, and I I used to do fashion photography. Made a bunch of money off J.C. Penney's actually, <laughs> and um, and so I showed them this uh, this work that I did. And then I basically, I had such fun, I proceeded to totally trash the consumerist, uh, the consumerist um, consumption um, disposal motif of fashion. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I said, okay, any questions? <laughs> <laughs> they were dumbfounded. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Kind of I your mean, own... Let's be clear. I've done anything for a dollar photography. well yeah that's kind of what i wanted to ask you about like if you know you you have obviously these strong viewpoints um around consumerism and things of that nature how how do you reconcile some of some of you know i i guess i don't want to say the necessities of modern life and being a photographer and you know having having a a book that obviously is printed on paper and uses ink and, you know, gets shipped around the world using, you know, airplanes and like, how well, like, and let's do, not do you, forget, let's not forget <laughs> me fly. Right. Right. Like, how do you, rec- how do you reconcile those kind of two conflicting things? Well, I do, I do the, I do what we all must do. I do the best I can do. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, for instance, I train it whenever possible. Um, I've got to go over to Europe and get to Europe, and then I'll train it all over Europe. And I actually train it down to Charleston. Not always. I fly sometimes. I, you know, I don't fly places for vacation. I fly places to make pictures or tell stories about the environment in peril. I, if I'm going out to Singapore to talk to the University of Singapore, which I'm doing next month, then I'm going to use that opportunity of being out in that part of the world to go to Australia and 
photograph out there. Um, so, you know, that's the way I go about it. Now, is that better than staying home? I'm not sure, Matt, to be honest. Sometimes I think, you know, and let's face it, I do everything else in my power. I don't take plastic in my life. I really just don't take plastic. I, you know, cheese is the only thing that I take that I basically have to. There's not a nice cheese store near. So I do everything. I, I don't own a car. I do everything I can do not to. And that's not possible for most people in the USA not to own a car. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, as I said before, if you want to do something, Forgo that fast food hamburger if you want to do something to save the world. It may, you know, it's only talking about 50 gallons of water saved, but that's 50 gallons of water. You know? Right. Well, um, I mean, I'm a vegetarian, so, and that's one of the reasons why I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> well, and I don't even advocate that. We all have to make our lifestyle decisions. Um, if you want, I used to be a vegetarian, I'm not now. Um, but if you want to eat meat, then figure out how to do it sustainably, you know? Right. Locally. Find, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, but don't buy a fast food hamburger that they're cutting down the Amazon to grow. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's hard in the modern world. It's I feel really like, hard. To, uh, to, 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 you know, to practice what you preach in terms of in consumerism and environmentalism. I, mean, I think like you said, I, I liked your answer, you know, do the best we can. And I think, I think, I guess I feel like if everyone just did a little bit more, it would be, it would have a huge impact, you know? Well, I think, look, here's Collectively. the way, here's, here's the only way that real change will happen. Real. And I've thought a lot about this and this is really what my work is about is making real change happen. And the way that real change will happen is when uh, a significant percentage of our population, let's say 7%, demands regulations that force real change to happen. So, for instance, if we all as a society said, hey, we need to have, we need to, to make train travel cheaper than flight. Mm, yeah, I mean, right. you, you, can, you can fly on budget airlines for under 100 bucks to almost anywhere in America trying to take the train. Um, right. If we as a society said, hey, you know what? Meat costs, meat has a tremendous environmental cost. We need to price it accordingly. Amen. Then, saying that yeah, then we'll, get, we'll get change when people demand, because it's industry that must change, but we must, uh, we must demand it and provide them the pathways to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, in a free market yeah. society, it's all driven by demand and and the dollar. Like that's what. Yeah, but wait a minute. Where do you know of any of those free market societies? Uh, I was going to say, even in the United States, you know, things are deferentially, uh, you know, with subsidies. Like meat and dairy should probably cost a lot more, and vegetables and fruit should cost a lot less if we yeah. really cared about health. But we subsidize and, we subsidize meat and dairy, and yeah, we subsidize we subsidize oil and gas. We you know so the we subsidize airports. So we're we're putting our tax dollars precisely in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. Um, but we have to realize it and demand it as citizens. 
right. and that's um, that's my goal. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a good maybe that's a good segue to ask another listener question. Uh, Michael Remke asks. How can photography be used to inform policy and how can photography be used to bridge the gap between land management decisions and public perception or public input into federal lands? Um, boy, federal lands. Oh, my God. You know, it's all about for me, it's all about public awareness and people standing up and saying, you say, right. And, you know, we know that universally Americans love their public lands, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's, I think I've read that that's the most universal uh, sentiment in America is mm-hmm. that, I mean, what are we all afraid of? Healthcare. Don't get me started. But, um, but you know, public lands. So, yeah, the, the photography is a vital tool for for letting the public know about those things. And you look back at the history of social change in America, and in a way, it comes down to the photographers and filmmakers who showed those things to the people. I mentioned Lewis Hine before. You know, it's all about Jacob Reese. It's all about those people that... Um, that cared about something and and went down in the trenches and photographed it um and mm-hmm. you know brought it before america and you know uh, uh, yes photography is a vital tool in that yeah so if someone w- wanted to, to use photography towards that end what what do you think they should do again you know what you want to make a difference Go tell the story of your local land trust uh-huh. or your local organic food uh, cooperative or your, you know, I, act locally. Um, yeah, I like and that. And act where, you know, don't preach to the choir. Preach to get on your little soapbox. Um, I'm speaking metaphorically, but there it is. You know, and preach to the dissenters. Let them know, you know, hey, we've got this valuable little wetland right here, um, and somebody wants to put a, 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 a factory farm there. Uh, you know, this wetland is is cleaning your air and your water, and we want to stay there. We don't want a factory farm there. I mean, there's no more noble battle than that one. No, I think <clears throat> I definitely think that. Makes a lot of sense. I guess kind of the last question I had, who do you think people listening to the podcast should know about and or who we should try to get here on the podcast um, to talk more about this, these types of types of topics? I'm so um, political. There's a photographer. I don't know if you could get him in Poland. Uh, Marcin, let me find his name because what I really am is um, is a data master. Let me see, and he does these um, wonderful Photoshop creations. His name is—I'm sure I'm getting the Polish pronunciation wrong. Martin of Ovarsik. Uh, 
It's O W C A R E K O W C Z A R E K. Um, yeah, he does these wonderful, and it's Marcin M A R C I N. Uh, you know, terrible at thinking up those recommendations. I was just looking. I found his. I found him. It's pretty interesting stuff. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, it's great stuff. I love it. Uh, do you know Sandra Bartocha? I do. Yeah. In fact, I'm really? probably going to yeah. have her on the podcast here soon. Yeah. I love her and I love her work. Do you know David Burnett? He does um, political, very political stuff. Yeah, I like his work a lot. And he he's a real, he, he's insistent on craft, which I find always refreshing oh yeah 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 i'm yeah you know his work i mean he's he's been one of he's been around forever yeah no i've i feel like i remember there's another god sorry there's another guy i like very much alexander chekminev chekminev he's from kiev c-h-e-k-m-e-n-e-v okay Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely put a link to all of all of their. Yeah, yeah, and it's hard for me to keep track, so I, I'm a real. Oh, you know who else I love? Hmm. Uh, is David Chancellor? Do you know him? Uh, again, I've heard the name, but I can't. he did this wonderful series of people, um, big game hunters, in front of their in front of their. Quarry. Um, they're surreal. They're wonderful. Uh, yeah, and actually, okay. Um, Yuha Hymanen, who is, uh, yeah, he's um, Finnish, does really beautiful work, started with this idea of oppression, police oppression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are people that I think are really out there doing something interesting. Right, um, right. With photography. Cool, man. <laughs> well, awesome. I appreciate uh, the recommendations, and um, I really had a I had a good time chatting with you, Henry. It's been it's been fun, and hopefully, we pissed a few people off. Um, hopefully, that... <laughs> why else are we here? <laughs> yeah, why not? You know, um, yeah. if you don't make somebody mad, you're doing something wrong. So exactly, that's what I say. Good. Uh, well, and I look forward to meet you. Um, so you know. Definitely, when you're coming through New York, or um, or when I'm coming out that way, I will ping you. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I've actually never been to New York ever. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're not missing much. Um, <laughs> and and thank you again for you know the endorsement and the, you know the yeah, it's really it, it, it's it's very uplifting. Oh yeah, sure, man, no problem. Um, how can people learn more about your work and your your book? jhenryfair.com. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I'll definitely put a link in the Thank you for that, for that setup. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. No problem at all, man. Well, cool. This has been fun and uh and we'll chat again soon. Thank you. All right, we talk soon. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to Henry for joining me on the podcast for a fantastic discussion. I really enjoyed our conversation and hopefully listeners, you enjoyed it as well, even though we did get a little political. 
Also, I wanted to uh, thank our latest supporter over on Patreon, Josh Meyer. Thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate the note you sent me back. And um, hopefully we can record some more podcasts that you find valuable. I also wanted to thank John Fisher for increasing his pledge. I really appreciate you. And, you know, I always love hearing from listeners, especially patrons. And I would like to hear back. What do you like about the podcast? What do you want to see more of? What do you want to see less of? Let's hear it. All right. Well, let's talk about who is coming up on the podcast. Uh, So next up, we have Scott Walton, a photographer originally from the commercial industry, and he's now working as a landscape photographer. Uh, We have Ugo Che. He is the man behind Closing the Gap podcast and the Traveling Image Makers podcast. And I'm actually recording with him here tonight at 10 p.m. See, look, I stay up late just for you guys. <laughs> uh, we have Sarah Lindsay. She's a very talented Canadian photographer. Uh, thanks to Jeff Bartlett for making that connection. We also have Chris Byrne. He has won lots of awards with his great aerial images and does some workshops with my friend Gary Randall. I look forward to recording with him soon. And we also have Clay Bolt. He is a well-known conservation photographer and really looking forward to that conversation as well. Uh, Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. We'll see you next week.